House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Today we have a very special guest. Um, really appreciate him doing the show. Uh, he was an FBI special agent, and he's written a book called In the Name of the Children, Jeffrey Reinick. Thank you for being here. Thanks, Alex. How did you um, get into the FBI? I One of the things in the book that I start out with is the fact that I was born with birth defects. I had a club left foot, and I, I was born with cerebral palsy. And uh, when I was nine years old, I went through experimental orthopedic surgery. The surgeon, whose name was Anthony De Palma, believed that if he surgically fixed my left leg so that it was fairly straight, that it would stop the scoliosis in my spine, which had started about the time I was seven or eight years old and, and was believed to have um, gotten to the point where it would become much, much worse. And uh, just as a point of interest, Dr. De Palma's son was the famous movie director, Brian De Palma. Oh, wow. And uh, so when I was nine, I had this experimental surgery, which literally changed my life. And uh, much to everyone's surprise but pleasure, I was walking fairly normally. I was able to walk normally, and because of the extended period of time I was on crutches, I had a lot of upper body strength. And for me, uh, you know, I, I spent the first nine years of my life getting beat up and picked on and singled out. And uh, I, you know, at this point, it made me angry. So I was an angry adolescent. But um, all my life, I had wanted to become an FBI agent. My dad was an undertaker, a funeral director. And at one of the funerals, uh, the person that the funeral was for was a, you know, a, a, a guy, a, an organized crime guy. And I remember all the FBI guys outside the funeral home writing down license plates. And, and, and I just thought they were great. It just really, really impressed me. So all my life, I, I lived wanting to become an FBI agent, but always realizing because of my uh, physical issues that I probably would never be able to. And then as I grew older, uh, I, went, I went to college. And after college, uh, I didn't have enough money to go to law school. And so I was looking for what to do with my life. And I was really kind of lost for a while. And I began ran, running. And I realized that, you know, I, I had the physical strength. I could do the running and everything. So I started applying at law enforcement. And the FBI offered me a position as a clerk. So I went to Washington, where I served as a clerk for two and a half years. And from that uh, position, I was able to apply to become an FBI special agent. The FBI had a program where if you served uh, as a clerk for three years, you could become eligible to apply to be an FBI agent. But that program ended six months after I started down there. So I went back to school at night full time to get 
the equivalent of a second undergraduate degree in accounting. And so I applied to the FBI as an uh, agent accountant, and uh, that's how I got in. And it never occurred to me, I always thought of myself doing violent crime. I never thought of myself doing accounting crime. But uh, that was a way of getting in, and, and so I, I pursued it, and it worked. So were your first assignments then uh, forensic uh, accounting? Yeah, well, well ironically, uh, the FBI at that time, I, be, I graduated agents class in October of 78, and the FBI was starting to concentrate agent populations in major cities. My first assignment was Chicago, and ironically, I ended up on the Fugitive Squad, and, you know, I loved that. Um, but six months after serving on the Fugitive Squad, I was assigned to the Accounting Squad, and I was extremely unhappy. They are very restless. I don't know if you ever have seen the movie Casino with Robert De Niro and mm -hmm. Joe Pesci. And oh, yeah. in Chicago, there was a major case being run out of Chicago that was aimed at the organized crime infiltration into Las Vegas and the skimming of the profits from the casinos along with political favors from politicians and they set up a special case called Pendorf, and I ended up being assigned to that where I was, I was one of many agents uh, where we got a Title III or we, were, we went up on a phone tap for the 13 phone lines at the Teamsters Health and Welfare Fund. Oh, wow. And so I served on that for about, I think, 13 months, and then my father was diagnosed with lung cancer in Philadelphia in 1979. So I uh, requested and received a voluntary transfer to New York City, which is, I went there in April of 80. And what, what were you assigned to do in New York? In New York, I was assigned to the government program fraud squad, where, of course, you know, we work government program fraud. I was, I worked. Uh, I developed uh, kind of a, a niche in the small business administration stuff uh, where there were kickbacks to loan officers, things like that. And then uh, uh, another uh, squad that I was assigned to, uh, which wouldn't sound like violent crime, but it was uh, interstate, tr interstate transportation of stolen property as it involved bonds and checks and things like that. And so I was on that squad, and, you know, I, I enjoyed that because uh, that we got more towards robberies and, and you know, um, and, and so I worked that for a while. And then after I was working uh, the criminal matters for about five or six years, uh, I was sent down to the Foreign Counterintelligence Division, and my first assignment was working East Germans, but then they went out of business, yeah. and then after that... I was assigned to the Chinese squad. Oh, wow. That that has to be fascinating work. Now, do you speak German or Chinese? Absolutely not. No, yeah. we, um, <laughs> you know, it, it's a lot of the, uh, you know, it's a lot of the intelligence stuff that you see. The FBI has changed this structure where it's becoming intelligence driven. But at that time, we would be assigned cases concerning officers that, you know, were either engaged in, in intelligence operations or 
officers that we were interested in trying to recruit to our side, things like that. So it was very interesting, but it's also very slow moving. It's it's not as uh, fast moving as as a criminal matter. And uh, although I I preferred the criminal matters, and then in uh, I served there till about 1991, uh, at which time I transferred to the Sacramento division because I met my wife in 1982. We started our family. Um, we got married in 1984, had our first son in 1987. We decided that we wanted to live in a place that would be wonderful to raise our family, and we eventually decided upon the Sacramento metropolitan area. So I was transferred to Sacramento in April of 1991. And so did you spend most of your career, the rest of your career there in California? Yes, I did. I got here in 1991, and I retired in 2006. When my wife Lori and I transferred out here and for uh, 10 months earlier, our oldest son Joe was diagnosed with a very serious disease called pediatric nephrotic syndrome. Mm -hmm. And my wife is emotionally stronger than me. She, she was the emotional rock of the family. Um, and the, uh, my, my son's illness, uh, really affected me. When I got to Sacramento, uh, I think about a year after I got here, I was sent down to a child abduction of a seven-month-old baby in an armed home invasion abduction, and I tied up with a Sacramento Police Department detective named Greg Stewart, and the two of us uh, worked that whole week, and uh, at the end of the week, that Friday, we recovered the baby. Oh, wow. And uh, from that time on, the rest of my career was working missing and abducted and murdered and sexually assaulted children. And and I think, and my wife Lori believes, I think people who know me believe that, you know, it was one of the emotional effects of my son's illness made me so passionate and driven about the crimes that concern children. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm really fascinated by uh, child crime as well because I, a person attempted to abduct me when I was 11 years old. So, wow. um, yeah, I, I luckily was able to break free of the person, run screaming uh, to a, a house in the neighborhood. I, I just did all the right things sort of out of instinct. But uh, um a, a few of the cases that you've been involved in uh, have a special connection to me, especially um, you were involved with uh, Carrie Stainer, who was the brother of Stephen. Um, yes. So would you mind talking a little bit about that? We devote two chapters of the book to this case because uh, it was a very interesting, it was complicated, and uh, it was it was an intense case. We had you know, four wonderful women that, that didn't survive. And uh, so it, it has, you know, a marked effect. I would like everyone to understand, at least from my point of view, that I think what society doesn't appreciate is that we as investigators, as FBI agents or detectives, when we get involved in these cases, we also become emotionally involved because we care Um we become, we allow ourselves to become almost extended victim families, and, and it gives us the drive 
to, you know, work long hours and do what needs to be done to find out what happened and either bring the victims home or to get the offenders uh, into justice or both. In the Yosemite case, uh, it involved, there, there are actually two parts. The first part is um, Carol's son, her daughter Julie, and their friend from Argentina named um, Silvina Peloso. And they, Carol, Carol, the mom, and she had a friend named Raquel Peloso. And Carol and Raquel were exchange students, and so the families had become very close, and it became like a family tradition. So when Silvina was growing and Julie was growing, they continued doing what their moms had done. So on Valentine's Day weekend of 1999, uh, the three of them started in Humboldt County in Eureka. They rented, uh, they flew down to San Francisco Airport. They rented a car. It was a red uh, Pontiac Grand Am. And they drove to the University of the Pacific, which is just south of Sacramento. And Julie was exploring the cheerleading program there and thinking of attending that school. After they got done with their tour, they continued down to El Portal, which is seven miles away from the entrance to Yosemite, and they stayed in a motel called the Cedar Lodge. And then the arrangements they had with Carol's husband, Jens, was that on February 16th, the four of them would meet up at San Francisco International Airport and fly on to Arizona, where they were then going to spend a week with Jens's sister and her husband in Arizona. So, you know, Carol and the girls went down first, and then on the 16th, Jens flew to the airport. When he couldn't find them, he believed that he had you know, messed up his instructions. You know, we, all of us, husbands or, you know, partners in relationships, whenever we're supposed to do something and it doesn't work out, you know, we figure we screwed up our instructions. And so he, uh, after waiting, continued to fly on to Arizona by himself. And when he wasn't able to reach uh, Carol, he started calling into the Mariposa County Sheriff's Department to ask for help locating her. Mm-hmm. When they, and the, the Mariposa County Sheriff's Department is, is really good. I know the sheriff there today, and then, you know, the sheriff was a sergeant, but really, really wonderful people. And when you come to these rural sheriff's departments, they are the best when it comes to working missing people because they are experienced in search and rescue. They're very experienced in these matters, and it's been my experience that they're very, very competent. So when the Mariposa County got the call, they went and they looked at the room where Carol and the girls were staying, didn't really see anything out of the ordinary, but they did what every good law enforcement uh, department does is they put Carol and the girls into the NCIC system as missing people so that if they were encountered anywhere, uh, it would be reported. And then uh, they, the girls went missing on the 15th of February. 
Jens couldn't find them and called in the missing persons report on the 16th. And then there was a strange uh, occurrence on February 19th at a busy intersection in Modesto, which is about 60 miles west of where they were staying. Carol's wallet insert with her identification was found by just a person walking by. And that person turned it into the Modesto Police Department who checked NCIC and found the missing persons report in from Mariposa and they were able to figure out that Carol was the person missing from El Portal, and so that immediately added a new dimension to the case. And because Carol's insert had been found, there was a concern about how could her insert from her wallet have gotten separated from her, especially with her identification. So uh, the FBI was asked to assist, and... Uh, I was assigned as the agent, uh, case agent and instructed to report to Modesto on February 22nd, which was a Monday. And uh, I went down there and uh, I tied up with an, a Modesto agent named Terry Scott. The FBI maintains satellite offices, which we call resident agencies. So there was a resident agency in Modesto. Normally, that case, that office would have handled this, but they were involved in a case, and therefore I was assigned as case agent. But uh, Terry Scott, the agent down there, and myself, we both went and started interviewing the family, and we really didn't get anything of value. We learned that Carolyn Yens had a troubled marriage, but there was nothing there that really flagged any kind of culpability in terms of why they were missing. There was theories that it was a car accident or that they might have gotten lost. And then, as frequently happens in marriages that are troubled, you know, there was the concern that maybe Carol and the girls had just gone off on their own exploring and just decided not to call in. So that's how the case started. When, when you're assigned to that office as the case agent, uh, you're the only one from the FBI? Not really, no. I'm the lead person for the FBI. I'm the one who is responsible for documenting the investigation that, that takes place. I'm responsible for basically running the case. In this instance, because Silvino was an Argentinian citizen, a lot of notoriety started being pinned on this case because of that, and also because Carol's father was an individual named Francis Carrington. And Francis Carrington was a very, very well-known, um, very successful business person from Eureka, California, and he had very uh, influential friends. Uh, I have a friend that was sitting with the family, and he tells of a call that came in from the governor of Nevada. So that kind of thing will get the FBI's attention. So even though I was the case agent, very quickly I started losing my ability to run the case because uh, the FBI management felt responsible because of how much notoriety the case was getting. So now it, it took you a while. Like you originally, um, Stainer was not the person that you thought was, you know, your culprit. Yes, that's correct. We spent the beginning of the case 
Um, you know, basically, when you when you respond to something like this, at least I do the way I work is I always start at the center and work my way out. And so, what that means in this case is we started at the um, the hotel they were staying at, and we started looking at people there. We started conducting polygraphs of people and and wondering, you know, if we had any suspects there. But also there was a very strong effort being placed on search and rescue. It was one of the, if not the biggest search and rescue operation in the park uh, at that time. They, we brought in a Navy, a Navy P3 plane, which, you know, looks for submarines, hoping to find the car, which maybe had gone off a cliff or something. And so uh, I also had discovered that there was some irregular banking activity in the Wells Fargo Bank for uh, Yen's and Carol's account. So pretty much we spent our time trying to substantiate whether any of these issues would have been the issue causing the disappearance. But on March 19th, which was about four weeks later, a person up in... Uh, near Sonora, California, in Tuolumne County, came across a burned-out vehicle parked off the road. And the person took the license plate from the vehicle, and that license plate turned out to be the car that had been rented by Carol and the girls. There was also a significant reward out for the car's location, and the person took the license plate to prove that he was the one who found it so he would become eligible for the award. So this location where the car was found was quite a distance away from the Cedar Lodge in El Portal. So we all went up there and processed the scene where the car was, and then we started conducting leads up there trying to find out you know, how that car ended up there and why it was there a strong belief started formulating on the part of some of the investigators that what had happened to Carol and the girls had happened in Tuolumne County where the car was located. Many others believed that whatever had happened had happened in the Cedar Lodge down in Mariposa County. As they conducted a crime scene on the car, they discovered two skeletons in the trunk and one of them turned out to be Carol Sund and the other one turned out to be um, Raquel Peloso or I'm sorry, um, Sylvina Peloso and so with that we had two victims identified and you know, I want your readers to understand that in our minds, or your, I'm sorry your listeners, in our minds Alan, we've got a third victim unaccounted for and we automatically default to she's alive and we have to find her. And you go into frenzy mode trying to find this third victim. So there was a lot of time and effort expended in Tuolumne County trying to locate the third victim, which would be Julie. It wasn't until about a week later that an anonymous letter was received at the FBI resident agency in Modesto, and the letter contained a map, a map of a place called Don Pedro Reservoir. And on the top of the letter, it said, 
we had fun with this one, and on this map, there was an X. At this time, the FBI was starting up its dog pro program, and so they brought a dog from the Los Angeles division up, and within about 10 seconds, using the map, the dog located uh, a body, which turned out to be the body of, of Julie. And so at that point, we had the three um, victims located. And also at this time, lead information developed about two individuals in Modesto named Eugene Dykes and Michael Larwick, who seemed like they would be good suspects. And the reason for that was because Michael Larwick, who was an ex-con, was being pulled over by a Modesto police officer, and instead of pulling over and doing the easy thing, he got into a, uh, a pursuit. It turned out to be a slow-speed pursuit. And then when he came out of the vehicle, he ended up uh, shooting it out with the Modesto police officer, wounding the police officer, then fleeing to a building and becoming a barricaded uh, suspect. And when they, there was a lot of suspicion that he had that reaction to the car stop because he had something bigger he feared, and the uh, suspicion was that he feared um, being found out for his participation in what had happened down at the Cedar Lodge. And uh, he had a brother, half-brother named Eugene Dykes, whose, whose street name was Rufus. And from that point on, the FBI started very heavily investigating Eugene Dykes and Michael Larwick. And the uh, special agent in charge of the Sacramento office, his name was James Maddock, personally took over the investigation and replaced me as the case agent with another agent that um, would be more amenable to um, our special agent in charge running the case. And uh, so things, you know, went on like that, and then on July 21st, about uh, three or four months later, uh, a naturalist from Foresta, which is just a short distance from El Portal, but on uh, the National Park grounds, she went missing on July 21st. The next day, she, her body was discovered near the cabin where she lived, and she had been beheaded. And from this instance, they developed information that led them to suspect Kerry Stainer because his vehicle had been in the meadow where the victim's shack was located, and he uh, actually was taken into custody because he had marijuana on him, but he was accidentally released and when he was accidentally released, he went back to the Cedar Lodge where he lived, and he sold whatever he could and took whatever he had left and, and fled. And, uh, and nobody knew where he was. You ended up um, interviewing him at the uh, nudist camp, didn't you, well, Colony? Yes, Alan. We picked him up. <laughs> uh, well, the... The because our special agent in charge was pretty much running everything. He and he had a very strong media presence. Um, at first, uh, his he was 
in the media saying that Eugene Dykes and Michael Lark were the suspects. I don't know if he used their names or not, but he definitely pointed to them as the people who had committed this crime and indicated that they were already locked up on other charges. In July, when Joey Armstrong was abducted and murdered, uh, my my SAC, James Maddock, then again went on the uh, media to say that the murders from the previous February and then the current one were unrelated and had nothing to do with each other. We in Sacramento that were not working the case were not, were not aware of any information. No information was being, uh, you know, sent out to us. We were told that Carrie Stainer was either a boyfriend or a friend of Joey Armstrong who was fleeing in fear and that he wasn't, he was wanted as a witness or as a potential victim. And so when he was located at the Laguna del Sol on Saturday morning, the 24th, and we were sent to pick him up, um, we were just told he was a witness. We were not told of his suspect status. So when you went to pick him up, um, it wasn't in your mind that you were thinking of him as a suspect? Absolutely not. No, we were thinking of him as a boyfriend who was running in fear or as a witness or friend of Joey Armstrong, who, again, was afraid and, and, and you know, in the wind. We, we used the term in the wind. He was in the wind because uh, he was afraid. He was, he was afraid and, and trying to protect himself. So we were, uh, I was home that weekend. I knew nothing about the case. I did hear about Kerry Stainer, and I knew who Kerry Stainer's brother Stephen was because, you know, that became the main thrust of my work, working uh, murdered and abducted children and sexually assaulted children. So uh, it was interesting to me that Kerry Stainer's brother was Stephen, but outside of that, uh, none of us, you know, thought anything of it. I was home that weekend with my wife. My, my sons uh, were on the East Coast visiting family, and my wife had this very romantic weekend planned for the two of us. Uh, i got to tell you, I felt a lot of pressure over this. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so that Saturday morning, I get the call to respond. And uh, um, at the time I got the call, the person calling me, didn't know where I was supposed to go or what I was supposed to do, didn't even know which direction I was supposed to head. But they mentioned to me that my partners, John Bowles and Ken Hitmeyer, were requesting me. And pretty much that's all I needed to hear. So I, I popped in the shower, and uh, I remember the look on my wife's face as I was leaving, looking at me like I had escaped something. And uh, <laughs> so I then, I have a heavy foot. And so I was the first one to arrive at the Laguna del Sol. I've never been to a nudist colony before. And um, Oh, you weren't a member. Yeah, the, the only experience, if you want to call it that, was the movie A Shot in the Dark with Peter Sellers and Elka Summer, you know, where they're in the nudist <laughs> colony and he's walking around with a guitar hiding his, you know. Yeah. So I had, we, had, we had no idea what to expect 
And the Laguna del Sol employee that was waiting for us at the front gate was really fired up because apparently Terry Stanier was in the Colony Resort, and he was eating breakfast, but it was remarkable because he was wearing clothes. So i got to tell you, everybody likes to think, you know, they're going to react well, but uh, once we started walking through Laguna del Sol, I was literally fighting myself not to look up. I didn't I didn't want to look, but it was kind of a car look. And so that was my first experience in the nudist colony. And when uh, we also uh, asked for the Sacramento Sheriff's Department to join us because this is their territory, and even though we're the FBI and we have federal access and everything, you know, I believe that if you're if you're going to be doing something in someone's backyard, you let them know and you invite them to come along. And in this case, uh, Sacramento County Sheriff sent two deputies. So there was myself, Ken Hitmeyer, and John Bowles, and the two deputies. We went to the doors for the uh, restaurant where he was uh, having breakfast. And when he became aware of our presence, he stood up and he put his hands behind his head as if we were taking him into custody, which really, you know, that in itself is remarkable. I mean, I've never walked up to anybody yeah. before and had them do that. We had no idea what we were supposed to do. We had no direction. Uh, we were literally calling for guidance as we were there. And we were requested to bring him back to our office to be interviewed. There was no indication that we would be doing the interviews or anything. They just basically wanted us to transport him, and they wanted him to give us permission to look through his vehicle. And uh, I told them I had no idea why we were there, but if he would agree to come back to our office, I would give him a ride to the office and then I would give him a ride back down to Laguna del Sol when we were done. And he agreed to that, and he also provided permission to search his vehicle. I, at the time, was driving a two-door um, Ford Thunderbird. I, I got to tell you, I love muscle cars. I love restoring cars. I love working on cars. And so I always, at work, I always wanted the fastest, you know, rear-wheel drive vehicle that we had and I was always lucky enough to get cars that were being handed down from our surveillance squad. So in this case, I was driving this Thunderbird. And uh, because it was just a two-door car, um, Carrie, we placed Carrie in the passenger seat. We handcuffed him, not because he was a suspect or anything, but just because he was right next to me in the car while I was driving. It's a matter of safety and looking out for my personal safety. So we handcuffed him and then we uh, belted him in with the seatbelt and then I was on the driver's seat right next to him. And uh, John Bowles, uh, one of my partners, he uh, drove behind us to make sure I had security in case anything happened. On on that day, the ride back to our office from Laguna del Sol should have been a 45-minute drive, but there was construction going on, which resulted in lane closures. So what should have been a 45-minute drive turned out to be a 90-minute drive. And during that time, 
Terry Stainer and I were kind of thrust in, you know, it was a Saturday. We were thrust in this position together, kind of stuck together. So we were just trying to make the best of it. So during that 90 minutes, we were talking, and he was telling me about how he liked the camp, how he liked to be alone. He loved Yosemite. I was telling him that my idea of camping was an air conditioner, a TV, and a bed. And uh, that my wife, my wife Lori, was a fish and wildlife biologist for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And you know, I said she was a tree hugger, and you know, she always wanted to go out and step out under the stars. Not my thing. And so we kind of, you know, talked about that. And then um, I asked him if I could talk to him about his brother, because for me, this was these were the cases I did. And I was anxious to know how his family felt law enforcement had dealt with them. And if there were things that could be learned, things that could make us better at our job, that's what I would want to do. And he agreed to talk to me. And um, so we first, um, he, he, he got very emotional because he expressed, expressed emotion that his brother in 1973 had been abducted and held for seven years in literally a, a sexual object for these two pedophiles. And then uh, he walked out in 1980 with the new boy that had been abducted, Timothy White. But the two guys that had done this, that had taken his brother, had salted him for seven years, had taken another boy... They were sentenced to seven years in prison. And Kerry felt that this was wrong and this was not just, that how could they sentence these two guys to prison for seven years when they had held his brother for seven years, assaulting him? I agreed with Kerry, and I still do. I do believe he's right. I think seven years was not long enough for these guys. And because, right. you know, they let him out, you know, he, I know that he was trying to reoffend before he died. So that was uh, something we talked about. And I explained to Kerry that in the cases that I had been working, I realized or I thought I realized that, you know, with a family, when something like this happens, it's a wound and it will always be there. And the best that we can hope for is for it to be dealt with as much understanding as possible and and to go on with the ability to live out life but knowing like a scar that your life will it will always be a reminder this memory will always be there and the things that it generated will always be there but our ability as a society is to try and help the victims and the victims families get to a point where they can live their lives and get beyond this trauma. And we can't take away the memory or ease the pain, but we can try and give them the strength and the tools they need to live out their lives and try and find happiness with what they have left. The other thing Terry was really emotional about was that when his brother came home, his brother was not the same brother that had been abducted. Stephen was, uh, he was doing dope. 
He had different types of behavior. He had a lot of risk behavior. And, and Carrie described him as, as just living a reckless life. And eventually, when Stephen was 22 years old, he was riding a motorcycle and contributed to a vehicle accident where he was killed. And the driver of the car that hit him uh, fled the scene and fled to Mexico. He was then extradited back and charged with the misdemeanor and let go. So Kerry was very emotional about these things, and, and quite frankly, I agreed with him. I wanted to know what we in law enforcement could do to try and, and help. I told him I had the ability to get counseling if he felt he needed counseling or his family would be helped by counseling, that we, you know, I could try and, and do that. Um, we also talked about, you know, just other things. We talked about um, movies and, you know, we were just two guys, Alan, that were thrown together um, trying to make the the best of a day that neither one of us could do what we wanted to do. And one of the things about Kerry Steiner is that he's very bright, very, very handsome. And he reminded me of the character Billy Jack that was in a movie called The Same Name where the actor was named Tom Laughlin. Mm-hmm. Oh. Billy Jack was kind of like a sleeper movie in the 70s. And it was like one of the first martial art movies where you had a guy who was a, uh, a Native American who had gone to Vietnam, was special forces and, you know, extremely learned in the art of martial arts, things like that. And, uh, and Billy Jack was kind of like a reluctant uh, hero. And when he came back from Vietnam, his town was corrupt, and there was these white guys who were just, you know, destroying the peace and tranquility of the town and living at everyone else's expense. And Billy Jack was the equalizing factor who would uh, address the problems with his martial arts skills. It was pretty impressive. I mean, he always wore this black hat. He always wore a black T-shirt. I remember I started wearing a black T-shirt like he did. <laughs> and uh, Billy Jack was just, you know, he, he just uh, for me it was a memorable movie, and I, I just really liked it. One of my favorite Billy. lines from Billy Jack was, uh, "I'm going to kick you on the left side of your face, and there's nothing you can do about it." Yes, exactly, <laughs> and that's what I kept saying to Carrie in the car, and he kept saying to me that he didn't know the movie, he didn't know what I was talking about. And I kept saying to him the whole way up, I said, you look just like the guy. How can you not know this movie? And as we were driving into the secured parking facility at the FBI office, as we're going through the gate, he recites that line that you just recited. So that was perfect timing. Thank you for that. <laughs> and I looked at him, and he looked at me, and we both started laughing. And I don't know whether it meant I had, you know, crossed the line of friendship or whatever. But from that point on, um, you know, he, he was okay with me. When we got him to the FBI office, because he was not under arrest or anything, uh, we immediately took his handcuffs off and we put him into a room that was not locked and told him he was not under arrest and asked him just to wait for us. We were going to go in and find out what we were supposed to do. We had no information about the case. We were not in a position where we could 
conduct any interviews of him regarding the case. So uh, my boss was there, Maddox, and I asked him, uh, you know, what do you want us to do? And he said that he was heading to Yosemite for a press conference and told us that Kerry Steiner was an ex-boyfriend of the victim who was fleeing in fear and just asked us to interview him and find out, you know, why he was in fear and what he was fleeing from, things like that. So um, myself and John Bowles, we commiserated together and decided that we would uh, ask the polygraph operator to come in because as part of the polygraph, uh, they do a full interview, and that would get us off the hook of doing an interview about something we didn't know anything about. Because we had taken him from breakfast, I went through our night desk, and I ordered us all out some pizza. So uh, and during that time, we did a biographical interview of Kerry, just getting you know to know his background and anything, nothing about the case. And then... Uh, the pizza arrived at the same time Harry Sweeney, our polygrapher, arrived. And John Bowles came into the room where I was with Kerry <clears throat> and said, you know, the, the, poly, the polygrapher's here and the pizza's here. What do you want to do first? And Kerry uh, looked at me and said, let's get the polygraph. I'd like to talk to Jeff alone. So um, we, we put him back in the initial interview room that we had him in, and I went into the main office to find out what I was supposed to do. And i got to tell you, um, I don't know if this is embarrassing myself or not, but I, the way I do my interviews, the way I uh, interact with people, I believe everybody has value, and I deal with people on that basis. And so... The fact that he has to see me alone like this is not was not an only time. I've had several instances where people we were interviewing would ask to see me alone. And, you know, it, it would always turn out to be some type of a confession. But the joke about me was that um, I the, the um, subject would come out of the interview crying and I would come out of the interview crying. And... The reality of that is that when I meet people, I want to get to know them. I want to know um, what's, you know, what's happened to them and why they did what they did. And it usually becomes a very emotional, revealing type of thing. So when I came out and told Hitman that he wanted to see me alone, you know, everybody starts rolling their eyes like, here goes Reinick again. And uh, so I, I... I won't, you know, make it longer than it has to be, but I, I went back and forth to the room several times with Kerry because the first thing we established was that he he was the person we needed to talk to about the murder of the naturalist. And he also said there was more. And I go, well, what do you mean more? And he says, you know more. And you got to bear in mind that my boss was out there saying that that first case with the three women was over. And I asked him if that's what he meant, and he nodded his head. And I said, well, wait a minute. You know, my boss said that case is solved, and I wasn't sure that I really believed him. When 
I initially came into the room from getting direction of what to do. Carrie was sitting in a chair, and he was kind of hunched over. And I remember the room being dark, and he looked at me, and he said, you know, Jeff, um, there's times when I think about world peace and world beauty and everything is good, and there's times when I think I can kill everyone there is. He said that he had done some bad things in his life. He also expressed that he had been a victim of child molest when he was 11 years old by his uncle. And he was very, very self-reflective. And it was clear to me that, uh, you know, he was hurting. And, and when I see people hurting, I want to make them feel better. It's just my nature. So I said to him, Kerry, um, people do bad things all the time. It doesn't mean there are bad people. Good people do bad things all the time. It doesn't mean they're bad. Why don't we talk about this and figure out what you want to talk about, and, and we'll deal with this. And uh, he came back at me and said that he had the ability to give me closure and, and we talked about that aspect of closure in the car ride and that he could provide closure regarding Joey Armstrong and more and that's when he started indicating that he had knowledge about Carol Julie and Sylvina my partner Ken Hitmeyer at this time decided that because it was fairly likely we were going to get a confession that uh, he moved us to a room where the polygraphs are done. And that room can also be uh, monitored with audio and video recording equipment. So that's where we moved. And, and I also want to say, because it, it's come up a couple times through the years, that um, when I was in the car with Kerry initially, I gave him his Miranda rights. And when we brought him back to the office, the first thing we asked him to do was to, uh, you know, we gave him his rights again and gave him the opportunity to sign the form if he wanted to continue talking to us, which he did. And then uh, Hitman moved us to the polygraph room, and Carrie and I are sitting there, and John Bowles, my other partner, came up with the pizza. And... Uh, and I remember him opening the door and saying, pizza boy. But I don't know how to explain this, but hopefully your listeners will understand. I, other than my family, my second family, are these people I work with. We, we share life and death, literally. And when John came in with the pizza, um, I invited him to stay for the interview. There are, you know, other law enforcement officers out there that would want to be alone in the interview. But I personally feel that I'm better when I'm working with people I trust and people that I have faith in. I've never felt that I am the best when I'm alone. I always feel that I'm the best when I'm working with others. And John was very bright. He's smart. And uh, I believe that he made me better. 
and I like to believe I made him better, and I think together, you know, we would do a better job, and, and I think that's the way it turned out. But I've got to tell you, and for the benefit of you listeners, that um, right at the end of the session, before we moved to the polygraph room, Carrie said to me that in exchange for this information he was willing to provide, he wanted something in return. And, of course, I asked him what that was. And Carrie Steiner asked to see child pornography of young girls in exchange for his confession. I passed that request along. So um, that was, I did not have the authority to even address that issue. So I passed that issue on. When we moved to the polygraph room, when it was being recorded, and as he was finishing his pizza, uh, Carrie asked, said to me there were more things he wanted to request. And he basically said that in addition to what he had already asked for, he, he knew there was a, a heavy reward of, I think it was $275,000, and he wanted that to go to his family. And he also wanted to be housed in a new federal prison that was being built near where his family lived so they could come visit him. And, you know, at this point, I started to become a little frustrated, maybe even a little angry. And I said, look, you know, you, you already said your one thing. Now you're saying three things. And if we start doing that, no one's going to want to hear what we have to say, and we're not going to he- want to hear what you have to say. So pick the one thing you want, and that's what we'll go with. But that's it, one thing. And he came back at me and he said, okay, well, I want the first thing. And just for, for the benefit of your listeners, the first thing was the pornography thing. So I've always said that here we have a guy who is willing to sacrifice his life to see child pornography. So I think that we as a society need to take child pornography a little more seriously in terms of what it means. And... Yeah. Um, he he had said to me that you know when he had been he had been molested around eleven years of age by his uncle, and from dealing with so many victim children and so many of these issues, I have this little personal theory that you can tell the age of the preferred victim of your offender when you find out what age your offender was when they were a victim. So I believe most offenders have been at one point themselves victims. And by exploring that, that's how I formulate the age of the victim they prefer and what they're doing to their victims. You you, you put yourself into these uh, interviews um, with a lot of uh, your own your 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 own stuff, your own personal stuff. So you expose kind of your own vulnerabilities to these um, people that you're trying to get a confession out of, and, and it's probably your technique and your way of connecting with them so that you um, can get information from them. 
but but that's got to take a huge toll on your own your own mental status, your own life. That's absolutely correct, it, and it has it has uh, the emotional trauma has made me physically ill, and I've been suffering from illness for at least the last 15 years. Um, but you're absolutely correct. I am willing to share myself because the person you're sitting with, you're asking them to share themselves. And, and I think that you can't expect someone to um, want to share something with you unless you're sharing something with them. I think it's human nature. And when you talk about technique, Alan, I never thought of what I did as a technique. I thought of what I did as just a way of talking to people. Um, but since, if you brought it up, what, what, over the years, what I ended up with was, yes, wanting, wanting to understand. You know, I, I had an interview with a kid one time who had murdered another young boy. And, when I was doing the interview, in the beginning part of the interview, I asked him, you know, if you could have anything in your life, what would you want? And he looked at me and he said, if I could have anything in my life, I would want to be loved and I would want someone to love me. And I would want someone to love. And then he goes on to describe, you know, how he murdered a 15-year-old boy. So, you know, where... What do you do with that? How do you process that? And I think that one of the things that, that I believe, which I said, is that most of these offenders are themselves victims, and they're searching for something that you and I will never be able to find or understand. But for them, it's it's a product of what's happened. In, in the book, our... There's a there's a chapter named Danny, and in Danny's uh, chapter, I describe the boy who who killed Danny, and I don't want to use his name. I know we used uh, um, another name for him in the chapter, but this was a boy who had an IQ of 65. He didn't understand right or wrong. He doesn't understand the difference between death and sleep. He just exists but his mother had a boyfriend and when this boy was six years old his mother's boyfriend sexually assaulted him over a period of time and from the time that happened all he wanted in the world was to want to have sex with young boys that aged out about six i mean if it were seven or eight but they looked six that would qualify and that's where my belief that something happens to a child when they're assaulted that affects their emotional and sexual maturity. And, and I, I firmly believe this. So let's talk about the, the book itself um, and why you actually wrote the book. The... I... When you say, you know, how it affects me, um, I was, many, many nights, I would wake up crying and screaming with my wife holding me. 
many times I would come home from cases and just be emotionally gone. Um, my family lived with me during this time, and the trauma from the cases, along with the physical illness that it might have caused in me, became so great that uh, the doctors believe my pituitary gland was stopped working properly and I was not getting the hormones of uh, cortisol, you know, which deals with fight or flight, and, and, and I also was producing no testosterone, which made me literally a basket case. And it was my family that carried this burden of dealing with me like this. Um, the one of the chapters in the book is is the chapter about Michael, and when I came home from that crime scene, I, I barely remember my family talking to me. I I would remember sitting at the table and realizing that they were talking to me, and not having any clue as to what they had said or what they were asking me. Um, so when you say you know so. When I retired, um, I had, as my wife likes to say, I suffered a successful career. My last year in the FBI, I had a wonderful special agent in charge. And it was when, it was right after 9-11, and Robert Mueller had come in as our director, and he was changing the prior priorities of the FBI. And one of the things that was being changed was our focus uh, working these these issues concerning children, and I was called in and asked my opinion about this, and I expressed my belief that we made a huge difference in the ability to address these cases, both in the resources we brought to them, along with the agents. I believe an FBI agent working with a local detective or police officer is an unbelievably effective partnership, and in addition to that. I think that the, 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 the resources of the uh, forensics that we brought was remarkable. And I, I started listing examples to him about where we did make a difference, examples that I was involved in. And for the first time in my FBI life, when I got done talking, he looked at me and asked me how I was doing. I was totally unprepared for that. And... Um, I had an emotional reaction, and I told them that I, I wasn't sure how I was doing and that I believed I harmed my family. And he promised me that he was going to do whatever it took to get me back to some type of emotional stability so I could retire. And uh, I promised him I wouldn't get any more confessions, and he promised me that he he would do whatever it took, and uh, and that and when I retired, I retired in uh, May of 2006, and for the first six months after I retired, I pretty much stayed in bed every day. Every time I got out of bed, I got nauseous. I couldn't function. I slowly regained my function, but the thing that really saved me was my wife Lori. Um, during all that time, she stayed with me during some of the things I did that I'm not proud of. I mean, and so when she asked me 
to leave an accounting of myself for my children, um, it seemed like, you know, that was one of the things I needed to do to honor my family. And that's how the book was, was created. On a good note. Um, so how is life now? I'm the happiest I've ever been. I wake up with Lori. I go to sleep with Lori. We spend all day together. Uh, we hated the kitchen in our house the entire time we lived here. So over the last <laughs> several months, we've been remodeling the kitchen and we're fixing up our house. I've got uh, a grandson that's uh, two and a half years old. And I've got, I was just learned that I've got two more grandchildren on the way. So um, wow. I'm, I'm doing really well. I've been able to help uh, detectives in other cases. And I've really been honored because, uh, in one instance, um, as an example, because of the book, people have been reaching out to me. And in one instance, I, I'm, I don't know the, the Internet that well, but I got a message from a police officer on that messenger app, you know, as part of Facebook, he was actually right. in the process of planning and carrying out his own death. And he was listening to a podcast that had interviewed not only me, but my wife, Lori, about the emotional trauma. And as he was listening to that podcast, he believed that there was hope, that he had hope and so he called me and or didn't call me i'm sorry he he wrote me on this messenger i my son is a police officer so i asked my son what he thought i should do and my son suggested i call his police department and i did and i told him what i had what was happening and they eventually asked me to call him and i started off our conversation by promising him to be in his life for the rest of his life, but he had to promise to me that he would live. And uh, we exchanged our promises, and he went for help. And uh, I think he, he was doing better. He let me know he's doing really well. I haven't heard from him in a while, but I'm hoping that means he's doing well. I'll probably reach out for him because you're causing me to think of it. And uh, so uh, I've gotten calls and contacts from unbelievable uh, other investigators. Carrie Stainer's cousin contacted me and thanked me for portraying him in the book uh, the way she remembered him as a wonderful person. Um, one of the things, Alan, that I'd like to say is that the co-author of the book, um, Merrily Strong, she started calling what I did as an interview technique, and I'd never thought of it before, but I, I'm going to i just provide this to you, and you can take it for what it's worth. When I do my interviews, you know, uh, it's important to me to try and understand what happened, why it happened, what caused it. And so in Carrie's instance, in Carrie's case, um, First, I ask him to give me kind of like an outline of what he did, a narrative. And then I'll take his narrative and I'll tell him, okay, now we're going to go through again and I want to know what you saw, what you smelled, what you heard, everything you experienced. And then when we get done with that, we go back again 
and this time I want him to describe to me what the victim experienced because he's the last one to have seen the victim alive. He's the last one to have been with the victim. I want to know what the victim knew. And then uh, I'll ask him to describe it again, and this time I'm there as an observing party. What would I see? So it's three different perspectives of the same event, but each perspective will give a different level of information. And then finally, I learned from Greg Stewart at the Sacramento Police Department when we did the Frankie case that after we're done, I ask each offender to write a letter of apology to the victim. And I have never seen uh, something in the letter of apology that I missed in the interview. In other words, no matter how good you think the interview went, you'll miss something. And uh, the letter of apology many times will, will tell me what I missed or, or give me an example of something I missed. So that is the way I conduct my interviews. And by doing that, it gives me a real awareness for the offender, and 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 I want to know um, for the victim. You know, we as homicide investigators can't help ourselves but to look at the offender and think that that's the last thing that our victim saw. Our, our guest has been Jeffrey Reinick. Thank you for being here. Thank you. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. The mission has been completed. The end! By George, he's got it! It is the end! How dare you? If you're lying to me, I'll be back. This is the of something with media.